Welcome to the third episode of the New Wave of Healthcare. I'm your host, Emily Wittenhagen, the Marketing and Communications Manager here at the Washington Patient Safety Coalition. The tides of American healthcare are shifting rapidly, and while that means healthcare is in the news a lot more than it used to be, it doesn't mean the public necessarily understands what is going on. Even those of us in the healthcare world have a hard time keeping up, and amid all this uncertainty emerges The New Wave of Healthcare, a podcast designed to help you wade through the complexities of our system, how it got this way, where it's going, and most importantly, how it affects you and your loved ones. So today as our guest, we have Paul Eppner, the CEO and co-founder of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, otherwise referred to as SIDM. He is also the chair of the Coalition to Improve Diagnosis, a multi-organization collaboration. Paul is a past president of the Clinical Laboratory Management Association, CLMA, where he also created the Increasing Clinical Effectiveness Initiative. He's a member of the CDC's Clinical Laboratory Integration into Healthcare Collaborative, which is a consultant to their, oh, he is a consultant to their Laboratory Medicine Best Practices Program, and a chair of the Coordinating Council on the Clinical Laboratory's Workforce Task Force on Measuring Testing Relative Value. So, Paul, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Um, really looking forward to learning more about SIDM and just kind of hashing out what we can do about improving diagnosis. So, my thank pleasure. you, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for me. It's my favorite topic, so I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, and I'll be looking to you as very much a, an expert um, where I'm you know, I'm here to learn. So, Paul, I'd love to start to t- start off with you telling me a little bit about SIDM, how and when you came to decide to start this organization, and what were the beginnings like, which when we talked last week sounded not unlike IBM's beginning in a garage, only better because it was, it was what, in a, in a living room, a couple floors up from the garage? or. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, um, the seeds of it go back even before me. So back in the 2007-2008 time frame, there was a small group of people that got together. They were very passionate about this notion of, of diagnostic error. Mark Graber being one of those people, I believe he's been involved in your programs before. And, um, and they said, we need to have a meeting about this because people just don't realize the significance of this problem. And so for several years, they created a small conference Um, that was embedded in some other conference. We found people to partner with who were having a meeting and would let us be a sub-meeting. I got involved with the Toronto meeting in 2010. And then in 2011, Mark Raber and myself and one other person signed the papers to incorporate. So from 2011 through now is technically our age, Although we had no employees until 2017, I was basically a volunteer 
running the organization from my second bedroom between 2011 and all the way through January 1st of 2017. So we've, uh, and we now have 14 employees. So we've grown a lot in really only two years. So that's sort of our quick and dirty history of SIPA. <laughs> wow. So it's a second bedroom, not a living room. That's um, right. <laughs> we And we do know Mark. And yeah, we, we've we kind of become super fans of SIDM over here since we joined as a member organization this past year. And even just in the last few months alone, we've had Mark Graber do a webinar, Sue Sheridan, who's your patient engagement director, I believe, yep. do a webinar as well. And then the both of them are joining us at our conference as our closing speakers uh, next month. So, Lucky you. Um, yeah, <laughs> we're really looking forward to it. We also showed that that Tara's human movie that's basically starring Sue. So, Unfortunately, yeah. that's true. It yeah, I mean, true. exactly. Yeah. But what an inspiration, inspiration she really is. Yep. Um, so diving in, last week you were telling me about a, a presentation that you did on the diagnostic errors um, and health, it's called Diagnostic Errors in Health Informatics, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And I think I'd like to frame our conversation today in this way, but expand it a little bit to talk not only about health IT, but also about engaging patients in the diagnostic process and what that looks like in practice. But to start off um, talking about the good, the bad, the ugly, should we start with the bad news first or the good? I don't know which one you'd want to kind of start out with. Well, let's let's start out with some some uh, let's say a good perspective. Um, we know that we are reaching or have reached the limits of of what the human potential can handle. To err is human, as we know, and when a physician has to look at a patient. And basically, there's you know 50 to 100 maybe typical symptoms. They have over 5,000 tests that they could order, and they're in the ICD-10. There's over 10,000 diagnostic dis- conclusions that can be reached. Diseases. I mean, that's an enormous amount of information for any one person to be able to handle. And the amount of evidence that goes into the peer-reviewed literature every year just grows exponentially. And so the notion of using IT to support, not replace, to support clinicians and other healthcare professionals in their work to sort of lower the cognitive burden, that's a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous potential. Um, and so, yes, there, there is good with health IT. Now, there's also some of the bad, and that's what you were referring to as well. So we know that in many ways, um, the use of algorithms can send physicians down a path where they suspend maybe their own judgment and accept the most likely outcome when what we need to be considering is what's the worst outcome that we don't want to miss because it does show up. And so in some cases, IT can actually lead to premature closure or suspension of, of reasoning. And, and that would be one example of a bad use of IT. 
I see. So in some ways, it's it's as if the good and the bad are coexisting. In a way, it kind of depends how they're used, especially as it comes to health IT. So one of our diagnostic improvement workgroup members, uh, when I wrote to them to welcome questions for you, just sent this observation, which was that I think many physicians rely perhaps heavily on the EHR and may not be aware of the defects and systems that lead to diagnostic errors. So in that sense, you know, we can sort of lump the bad and the ugly together. What would you say is kind of the key elements holding us back from diagnostic accuracy there? Well, certainly there are situations like where physicians or nurses or others may cut and paste uh, information and in doing so may lose some of the precision that they uh, that is important to have in, in the record. Um, in some cases, when you're ordering the test, the EHR may be set up um, with a what we would call a pick list, a drop-down box to order a test. But if that is ordered, uh, say, alphabetically, instead of frequency of ordering, you may get two or three forms of, as an example, vitamin D. There's, there's multiple ways to order it. And the one that shows up first may be, not be the one that's most likely intended. So, but, but people tend to go to what they encounter first instead of continuing to search. And so just the, there, there's a variety of ways where the design of the EHR, the, the documentation that's required, um, all can contribute to um, mistakes. Now, at the same, another example is many tests, and I don't want to over rely on laboratory tests because certainly in the cut and paste, that's not a laboratory test phenomenon. But many tests are sent out from the on-site laboratory to third-party laboratories. Often the results come back in a scanned document or something that is appended to the EHR, not easily visible um, and, and so important information. Unless you know where to look for it or dig for it, you might miss. So there's quite a variety of ways of failure modes associated with the health record. Now, of course, ordering is less, there's less room for typographical errors, et cetera. The system will look for that. There's increased ability to systematize um, processes and all of those add to the quality as well. So it is a double-edged sword, there's no question. Right, it reminds me of when we were talking about uh, in a work group here on opioid prescribing, even just the way a system is, that's you know designed to help can unintentionally harm um, with an example like this isn't about diagnosis, but it is you know interesting where in a system like Epic, for example, they might have the um, the amount, the volume of the prescription might be the first in the drop down might be 120 pills where um, that person might really only need maybe 20 pills you know so it's like but the the provider might chart might, might choose that very first option because you know that's the tendency so 
Well, and, and just point, case in point again, if you are dealing with multiple laboratories, which every hospital does, um, the units of measure may be different in an external system, um, and that may not be necessarily detected right away um, if you don't validate every individual change by every vendor. So again, the, the number of failure modes is, is really astonishing. And yet, we couldn't, I think the future will, will suggest or show that electronic health records, especially if we can make them more diagnostic friendly, they will, on, on the whole, uh, improve the quality of the system. It sounds like you're kind of saying that it's always going to probably be, be a combination of the machine and humans making improvements to the system. It's, you know, we say to air is human, but our non-human machines are also not perfect and, uh, and we're the ones designing them. So it's, you know, we're going to always hopefully need humans and, and rely on our input, you know, to those systems yeah, to sort of I improve them as we go. Absolutely. I think there will be cases where the machine can do better. So potentially in the future, reading pathology slides, might be something or radiology images may lend themselves to um, artificial intelligence and increased quality. I don't know that we're there yet, but we're getting closer to that. But in terms of concluding diagnosis, I'm very concerned about that. So many people are talking about how artificial intelligence is going to change everything. But when you think about how diagnosis is done, a physician considers uh, family history, they consider social determinants, things like housing status and, and nutritional status and things like that. They consider what other things are going on in the patient, comorbidities, uh, they consider what other medications the patient is on. Uh, they also will, when they get into the symptoms, they're going to look at um, what makes the symptoms go away, what makes them worse, how long is it going on. None of this information is in a structured way in the electronic health record. Uh, I guess comorbidities and, med and other medications are, but those lists are often inaccurate. And so when you think about an artificial intelligence system that uses the data, the practice sets of data to learn from, many of the key elements that a physician uses for a diagnosis aren't present in a way that the uh, AI system can learn from. And I think we're a long way away from that. A lot of our electronic medical record systems were set up to facilitate billing and other kinds of business needs and less the clinical needs of the healthcare team. And so um, I, hopefully that will start to change. But uh, I think we're a long way away from the idea of being able to replace the healthcare professional. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I mean, I yeah, humans are... Though. It'll be a partnership. Yeah. Uh, humans are you know, very intricate and unique. And likewise, diagnosis is also often intricate and unique. And, um, I, you know, I do, I, I'm not a, I don't, I'm not one to demonize computer systems. So I do think they're incredibly 
helpful. Um, and I think, you know, they are going to come a long way. Just even the little bit I, I know about how a neural network works, for instance, and how it learns as it goes, you know, that's pretty incredible. Um, and if we can harness that kind of technology, you know, as it develops to, to help, that's great. Um, but I, I'm always happy to hear that humans are still, you know, necessary. <laughs> so. Well, and that's why I think the framework should be, the assumption should be not how do we replace physicians and other exactly. health professionals, but how do we extend their capabilities and how do we exactly. lower cognitive burdens so they can apply themselves to the toughest problems that are not subject to necessarily computer reasoning. Right, and and it's um, that's kind of related to something I wanted to talk about, where we talk also about, often it's called the soft skills, you know, the the communication and the empathy that comes into healthcare and and really should be, in my opinion, a, a big part of it. And I liked that in your materials that you sent me last week, one of them um, defines diagnostic error as a two-part. Uh, problem. And the second part of that is, I think, something a lot of people may overlook. And so those two parts are the failure to A, establish an accurate and timely explanation of the patient's health problem or problems, or B, communicate that explanation to the patient. Can you talk a little bit about that second part, the, where the communication comes in? Sure. And, and it's interesting, the, the definition you quoted comes from the National Academy of Medicine, formerly the Institute of Medicine, um, SIDM, my organization, petitioned the IOM in 2013 to study this problem because when To Air is Human, the original report in the late 90s came out, it basically ignored the problem of diagnostic error. Today, I think we believe that it is the most common problem and also the most burdensome problem of all patient safety issues in healthcare. Um, and, and so it was clearly a major miss. And in 2013, we petitioned for this report. In 2015, it was published. And this is the definition they came up with. And it was the accurate and timely piece was I think very crisply and well stated, but not so different from previous definitions. But this notion of communicating that explanation to the patient was brand new. And that is a very powerful concept. It sort of says that patients aren't just the subject of our experiments and our practicing, but rather patients are part of the team and they have the most at risk, the most at stake. And so if you leave them out of uh, healthcare and just practice healthcare on them, you are both losing the value that they can bring as well as patronizing in many ways and doing them a disservice. Patients can be extremely powerful um, players in the team approach to diagnosis and all of care. And yet, how do we measure whether communication is effective? And, and so those are things that the IOM recognized um, is something where work is needed and people are starting to work at that, but it is still, we're still a long way away from understanding what is effective communication. Absolutely. And I mean, good on you and your team for getting that recognized. 
and I, it's, it is hard to measure. There's a lot of pieces of communication that are so crucial, but in sort of intangible in some ways. So it's there's the communication between providers and transitions of care, um, and the communication between the provider and the patient, like you're touching on. You know, for instance, when say lab results come in and that may change a patient's possible diagnosis, but they're maybe not notified of that change, or that, or they maybe see those lab results in the patient portal, but that doesn't always consider health literacy. You know, they may not understand what they're looking at and be able to decipher it. So even that communication, being able to hear that from the provider and and get an explanation is sometimes a gap that gets created because communication falls away in between visits. So, Agreed. One of the reasons um, Sue Sheridan, who you've already mentioned, um, came on as our director of patient engagement was to address um, the, uh, the gaps in engagement of, of patients in their own care and focusing on outcomes that matter to patients, not that matter for their academic interests, um, but, but focusing on the things that are really important. And if you look at just, as you said, the lab results, um, physicians don't necessarily fully understand the intricacies of those lab results with the H's and L's. There's a lot of statistical um, treatment, uh, so a high value is high for a certain, you know, a certain percentage of the patients. It's 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 based. Uh, there can be healthy patients with high values, and there can be unhealthy patients with what's in the normal reference range because there's statistical treatment that leads to what determines an H and an L. Um, I was part of a team funded by the Centers for Disease Control to evaluate how primary care physicians deal with the ordering and interpretation of laboratory tests. And clearly they report significant uncertainty about elements of what to order and how to interpret the results. So if they are dealing with that, imagine how difficult it is for a patient who sees right. X's and L's and stars and doesn't know, am I supposed to call the physician back? Should I be worried? Is Are there more things I should do? Can I wait till next month when I normally see the physician or do I need right. to tomorrow? And, and these are the kinds of questions patients would, would have, will have, and have no way to get answers today. Exactly, and that limbo is a it's a tough place to be in, especially if you're you're unclear, you know what's going on, and you don't maybe have a diagnosis yet. You're maybe scared. That's not a great feeling for the for the patient. Um, I want to take a quick break, and then we and then get more into that subject of patient engagement, and then we'll come right back. All right, so we're back and um, we're still with Paul Eppner, the CEO of Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. 
And we, before the break, were talking about patient engagement, and that is something that I'd like to dig a bit more into as we are the Patient Safety Coalition here. So what I want to talk about is a little bit more about how can we best involve the patient and the family in the diagnostic process? I wonder if you have thoughts on key parts of that, what that looks like, and um, how providers can go about making sure they're doing that in the most effective way. Sure, be glad to expound <laughs> on that. I'm not sure yeah. <laughs> I have all the answers, but uh, I certainly have some ideas. And even the notion of patient safety doesn't by itself say you're involving the patient. It just means you're worried about the safety of the patient. And so that by itself is not a signal that we are prepared to truthfully and productively engage patients. And so what we imagine is true engagement and engagement can be at a lot of different levels. Um, organizationally, I think we would say that patients should be effective members of a health system board of directors. They should be in, they are, and should be involved in patient family advisory councils. And those patient family advisory councils should be trained in what is diagnostic quality. It's hard to measure. We're still working on how to measure it. And it's uh, not, it doesn't even necessarily have its own category in terms of adverse events. In many places, they don't have a category for it. And so the visibility, even at the patient family advisory councils could be low um, and certainly could be low in the C-suite and on the board. So um, one way to engage patients is to make sure that um, if you have a PFAC, and I believe about 60% of the health systems in the country do, um, mm -hmm. that they understand that this problem exists and it may be the most important thing for them to focus on. Um, at the, if there's research being done or quality improvement being done, or, which of course there is, or if there are guidelines being established, um, all of those activities should have patients involved. Um, patients have preferences that too often we ignore. Um, they have issues of missing work or um, affording health care, of uh, literacy issues that might be in, in, involve um, just English as a second language. So there are many factors that need to be considered even in establishing guidelines and processes and, and uh, quality improvement activities. Um, the individual patients, to the degree we can, and certainly SIDM will be trying to do this, uh, we need to create tools to help them become more effective partners in the diagnostic process. Uh, if a patient could um, be instructed in how to think about their symptoms before they arrive, how long have they been occurring? What part of the day are they worse? Does eating make them better or worse? Does laying down make them better or worse? Um, uh, do, do the kinds of foods you eat make them better or worse? Uh, those kinds of things add important pieces of information for the physician. Um, sometimes physicians, whether it's due to time or other kinds of biases or things, they, they may 
um, draw a conclusion and come up with a diagnosis uh, that is the most likely diagnosis, not necessarily the accurate one. Um, and so having patients engaged in asking questions like, what else could it be? Or what did you consider and rule out and, and, and why? And not to take it overboard, but uh, because there's only so much time and it can become um, burdensome uh, to be constantly challenged. So there has to be effective ways. But these are important ways to improve outcomes. And, and I think health systems can certainly work with patient groups to try to find the right balance of, of patient engagement and improved outcomes. Yeah, I really agree with everything you just said. I mean, um, <laughs> and I love that uh, you brought in the, you know, you bring in um, topics of nutrition because as a nutritionist, I love that that's getting more recognition. Um, but it's true that I like that you talk about both working with the individual patients and also uh, groups like PFACs and how important those can be and how they do need, to, um, you know, they really benefit from recognition from the leadership. Uh, and, um, and then you even touched on the research, which I uh, wanted to call attention to SIDM's that's called the PAIRD program, right? So that's Patients Improving Research and Diagnosis. Yep. Um, and I love that you have that. Uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes um, and any other resources you want listeners to be able to, to check out. But um, I mean, there's there's so many directions that of what you just said that we could talk about, but um, I did just want to draw attention to the that research program because I think that's fantastic. Well, and, and along the, that line, we were recently funded to partner with Stanford. We received the funds, but uh, we selected Kathy McDonald, Dr. McDonald at, at Stanford as our research partner. And we're going to be studying the issues of disparities in diagnostics. Mm. We know that um, visually identifiable factors such as age, gender, and race influence diagnosis. We know that um, uh, women um, are misdiagnosed with heart attacks more often than men. Um, we know that maternal mortality is higher among black women than white women, regard, you know, regardless of the socioeconomic level, regardless of their education, their income, or any other factor, just the virtue that by virtue of their race, they have higher maternal mortality during birth and in the days and hours right after birth. Um, so we know the diagnostic issues around, especially those, but again, others, homelessness, et cetera, obesity, um, many different issues impact how a diagnostic process works. And we believe that's going to be a big area for research in the future. Oh, I really hope so. And I'm really glad you bring all of that up. And it's, it's, uh, it is also a big subject. I mean, there's so many factors to that and there's so many social determinants to consider. Um, I do think some providers might feel even overwhelmed by that, uh, by the, those considerations, but that they should be really, as I see it, the lens through which every you know, interaction and consideration and someone's uh, care is seen. And 
I'm really glad that there's been more recognition of the importance of those factors. And really, it really does have a big impact on diagnosis. It sounds like it sounds like there's been more studies and more, uh, you know, just a lot more recognition of the fact that if you're in a certain population, you're more at risk for being either misdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all. Um, and there's so many reasons for that, that, you know, there's layers and layers of it. But as we piece through those layers, I think there, we hopefully will see a lot of improvement. Um, and that, do, you know, a lot of that does come down to people, you know, providers working through maybe some inherent biases that they don't realize they might have. Um, I really hope it starts being more touched on in, uh, you know, school curriculums. Um, just like we hope, you know, more patient safety considerations are also put into curriculums because for a long time that's even been um, kind of a gap in in uh, like medical schools learning. So, absolutely. And and yeah. as I was starting to say, so uh, Kathy McDonald at Stanford and Sue Sheridan from SIDM are partnering to study at least the age, race, and gender issues around diagnosis, just to get some initial research done on that area by talking to patients who have suffered diagnostic errors um, and where it seems that one of those three um, visual attributes was at risk. Um, there are other things going on that will try to illuminate that even more. Um, Dr. David Newman-Toker at Johns Hopkins has research that he's published where he looked at the number of patients who showed up at the emergency room with dizziness were sent home with a benign uh, diagnosis, benign vertigo, and who in the following three weeks came back with a major stroke and compared that to after three weeks. And after three weeks, it looks like it's pretty much the normal rate. But in those first two or three weeks, there's a seven-fold increase in the number of people having a stroke um, from the population who had previously shown up with dizziness. If you look at minorities, it's nine times. So it's seven among the total population, but it's nine times among minorities. So clearly oh there's something at work there. Wow. Wow. Um, well, the, the first projects you're talking about, I would definitely lump into the, the good category of, of things that are improving. Um, but as we, it's sort of like as we start digging into these subjects, the more we kind of uncover about what else needs to be considered and what else might be problematic. Um, and I really do, I agree with you so much that, um, that disparities and, and issues of inequity and all of that is a big part that's probably kind of coming more and more into the light. So we could we could probably talk about that for hours. For <laughs> um, and I would love to, you know, I, I would love to explore that a bit more because I really do think that's a lot of people are, are starting to, to notice that that's um, these factors are huge when it comes to diagnosis and just, you know, um, outcomes and even just a patient's experience. And kind of on that topic, so much of this is about having trust in 
and respect for the patient, trusting that they are, you know, the experts in their own bodies to a certain extent. And that sort of fine line between giving them that trust and respect and then using, you know, your expertise to kind of bring them along. So collaboration is is important and I'm sure challenging in some cases. You know, a lot of people these days, speaking of technology, a lot of people are consulting Dr. Google as we call <laughs> as we call it. And so do you have any advice for providers for just how to go about collaborating effectively? Sure. And of course, without training either the provider or the patient, it's not going to be perfect. Um, and so the first, I guess, rule of thumb, I would say, is a, a, a physician or a nurse practitioner or other healthcare professional involved in the diagnostic process should go in with some level of patience, not patient, patience, mm, yes. um, and, and tolerance <laughs> for an imperfect process that's still very important. Um, because there may be a lot of extraneous information provided by the patient, but within that there may be very meaningful information that wouldn't come out without enough uh, discussion. Uh, Dr. Absolutely. Dr. Lisa Sanders, who writes the misdiagnosis uh, column or section of the New York Times every month and who is a technical consultant for the TV show House and um, who um, is a Yale physician, uh, wrote a book, and this is not a plug, it's been out for a long time, but she wrote a book mm -hmm. called Every Patient Tells a Story. And in it, she lays out, among other things, the evidence that if physicians will not interrupt the patient and will not um, turn every question into a yes, no, but allow them to give sufficiently expansive answers, um, that the diagnosis will become much more obvious. It's when we get ahead of ourselves and convert that discussion into, did you have a stomach ache this morning? No. Um, the fact that they had a stomach ache at 11 o'clock last night never came out, right? Or things right. like that. You know, I mean, it may not be the greatest example, but you get the idea that sometimes it's hard to ask the right question. So you do have to allow patients to um, respond the way they can and, and, you know, help them get the right information out. There's no question that they should do that. No, I think you're so right. And um, I was just kind of over here cheering when you said patience, because that, I mean, it's, it's right there in the word and um, it's yet so easy to miss. And um, people are often there to, they don't necessarily know which is the important bits of information. They, they are in a lot of ways are there to be heard because they've maybe been confused or burdened by these symptoms. Um, maybe they're a little bit scared and they're so often it seems like it's just to create that space that feels safe and comfortable to share their story and then to have the ability to wade through that story, appreciate it, hear it, have patience for it, and then find the bits that are important and, and take those threads and explore them. That to me is an excellent provider. You know, and the, the challenge that a lot of providers have is not that they don't 
maybe have that um, inclination or that ability, but that often they just lack the time. And I do think I, I come back to this so often, which is the is a systematic problem in, in healthcare, which is just really the lack of time for face-to-face -face interaction that that is allowed um, given the current system. And there is that's not um, something that seems to be changing significantly, unfortunately. But I my my real hope um, is that that's that does start to change. Well, and I think, I think there's patience requires time as well. You know, absolutely, and and uh, I think there are some possible changes coming um, in the long term. Certainly, um, if you if you've moved from fee for service into value based care, um, mm -hmm. getting the right answer, uh, we believe that diagnostic error contributes a hundred billion dollars of waste to the system every year besides being the number one source of malpractice and number one source of malpractice payout, right. et cetera. So um, getting to a right diagnosis is cost justified. And mm -hmm. if, if that's true, and if the utilization of time will improve the outcomes, well, then we need to recognize that and allow for that time. Now, obviously, we need to figure out what to do with the time. The the other thing is the Institute of Medicine, again, now called, I need to switch to National Academy of Medicine, their current name. One of their eight recommendation areas was around payment models, and they refer to E&M, evaluation and management, as an area that's not reimbursed well, um, and that taking more time to do diagnosis doesn't get you more money. What gets you more money is doing more things. Um, right. And so if they've recommended that we that an increased emphasis on reimbursing for E&M be integrated into the reimbursement system. So I'm not saying it's around the corner, but but people are identifying this as one of the ways to improve diagnosis. That's great to hear. And it is true that, you know, for some changes to happen, often it is, unfortunately, um, the leadership needs to see the dollar signs and that and the cost going down. But also the idea is that that cost savings is also transferred to the patient in a lot of cases. That's the hope. Um, but I'm glad to hear that there's, there's hopefully changes somewhere around the corner. I know we only have a few minutes left and I, I want to just, you know, allow you to say anything you know, burning on your mind and ask just one question from one of our work group members. If we can, if we can make this at all succinct, which may be not possible, but how do we go about systemizing the diagnostic process to improve reliability? Is there any way that can be put into a nutshell? I know that's a tall order maybe. Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, one of the other things the National Academy did was to define the dish and create a pictorial of the diagnostic process. And, and so often people don't think of it as a process, but it is. It's an iterative process. Um, it can be a complex process, but it's a process. And so by being a process, we know a lot about improving processes. So certainly that's hopeful. But there are breakdowns in the process, especially at the handoffs that occur between shifts, 
um, between settings, such as from discharge to back into the community system. Um, and at those handoffs, we have a lot of breakdowns and processes. During the referral process, there are breakdowns. So we can, I mean, FedEx, UPS, they know where a package is every second. They know mm -hmm. when, when something's due somewhere and when it's missing. Um, and, and they can find it almost always. Um, we can't do the same in the diagnostic process. Um, we can't even tell necessarily whether a test that has been ordered, where the sample is at, at, at any one moment in time. Oh, yeah. So when the laboratory issues the result, but we don't always, we know when it hits the inbox of the physician, we may, we may or may not know that it's been reviewed. Um, and we, we certainly don't know that it's been acted upon. And so by taking some of these cognitive processes and building them into the systems and trying to use IT to create um, monitors such as the FedEx system, uh, right, yeah. an example, we can increase the reliability of the system for sure. <laughs> that is, I mean, that is such an excellent example of how health IT could be so useful because it's, uh, you know, that is, it's really handy to be able to track your package. And, and um, when it comes to more crucial things like, uh, like diagnosis, you know, you want to know where that is. And um, so I'm, I'm really, now I'm sort of feeling optimistic. Uh, hoping that <laughs> these things, <laughs> which doesn't always happen, so I really do hope there's um, some, you know, some smarties out there who can help build these into um, sort of the back end, and you know, as we we will continue to humanize the system with good communication, but uh, as as we build in these great technologies, I really do think that's uh they're going to kind of go hand in hand for improving so um that's great so i wanted to ask what is on the horizon for you and for SIDM, and what are you looking forward to um well unfortunately we're looking forward to lots of work um <laughs> Uh, because lots is needed and we'd like to do more and so you know certainly we we welcome our we're a 501c3 we certainly welcome philanthropic donations at improveddiagnosis.org our co coalition which is now over 50 organizations including the joint commission and the accrediting council for graduate medical education and leapfrog and and of course your organization and many others continues yeah. to be committed to working towards this our strategic plan for SIDM includes five priorities that of building awareness and engagement of transforming the way we teach healthcare professionals of advocating and obtaining increased funding for research of identifying and disseminating effective interventions and of um, ensuring constructive and effective engagement of patients. So we have lots of work to do ahead of us and people can certainly go to our website and even without making a donation, uh, just register to, be, to receive our newsletters and keep up to date at improveddiagnosis.org. Um, and uh, it's, it's hopefully a very positive future with fewer uh, elements, uh, few, fewer cases of 
harm caused by diagnostic error. Well, thank you for that. Um, and it sounds like it sounds like you have your work cut out for you. But I'm really I know that we here are really have really enjoyed just the short time that we've become, you know, partnered with your organization and that, you know, we're so excited that we'll have Mark and Sue here soon. And I only wish that you could come out too, but um, maybe, maybe next year. So maybe um, next year, invite me. Yeah, we would love that. We would love that and have just, yeah, I can't say how, how much we've just really enjoyed being involved with the organization because it's, it's doing such great work. People are always raving about your conference, saying how, how much fun it is and how interesting. And so just keep up the great work. Thank you for making me feel a little bit optimistic today about the future of our healthcare system, which, like I said, doesn't always happen, but I, I, I like to err on the side of optimism. And, and the reason that we can be optimistic is that there are organizations and people doing this great work. And so we just really want to thank you for not only taking the time today to, to talk to us and explain more about that, but just for the work that you're doing and um, it sounds like we'll continue to do. So thank you so much again for talking today and I hope that listeners enjoy uh, getting to know you a little bit more and, and, and know more about SIDM and where things are going. And I will include any links that you'd like me to include in the show notes. Uh, like I do want to include one about the Patients Improving Research and Diagnosis, the PAIRD program, you have that great patient toolkit for diagnosis that we've shared around, but I'll include that as well. And feel free to send me anything else, and I'll, I'll put that in there. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. I've enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> Thanks so much, Paul.